0: I am horrified with myself. I mean, he really should be,
1: though. He really should be.
0: It's so stereotypical. Like, and I don't think I've ever done it like this. (laughs) So, listeners, let me tell you uh, what I did today and how I want to crawl into a hole and die right now. (laughs) So, Brittany and I, um, we're recording a murder mini after this. And what we'll usually do is text each other, like, I'm doing this case so that we don't accidentally pick the same one. And so I texted Brittany, I'm doing the murder of Jennifer Cave. Except I didn't text Brittany. I texted my apartment locator, <laughs> I'm doing this murder. After she was like, what time do we want to meet? And I'm like, murder. <laughs> and I realized it like A minute later, it wasn't even an instant (laughs) thing because I realized it when I went to text Brittany something else and was like, wait, (gasps) no. (laughs) So I was just like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. My sister and I have a true crime podcast. And then like the 10 longest minutes of my life passed and she texted back (laughs) and she's like, ha ha ha, sure. Oh my God. I was like, okay. But uh, yeah, so that happened.
1: Y'all. He tells me this, <laughs> literally, I'm at work in a conference room, thankfully with only one other individual, and I just start busting out laughing, and I have to tell her, and like, obviously, and it just, you know, we all have those moments where we text the wrong person, and generally, it's always a text that's not okay to go to anyone mm-hmm. except for the person you meant it to go to, but yours, made you, your apartment locator's like, huh, should we... Are you looking for a place with extra storage? <laughs>
0: no, I'm sure she's like, um,
1: actually, yeah, I can't uh, meet
0: uh, anymore. Uh, or, bye. Or
1: ever. Actually, my name's also Jennifer, so there are lots of problems here.
0: <laughs> God, I, I'm, I'm just horrified myself.
1: Like, I get it. I get it. I would be too. But since it wasn't me, I just get to laugh. I'm sorry. I love that, you.
0: <laughs> no, I would uh, I would crack the fuck up if it was you.
1: <laughs> well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany.
0: And I'm Tyler. And I am just... I'm gonna just turn my phone off forever.
1: But I mean, you know... That's
0: what, the only safe thing.
1: You know what's good, though? You know what is good? As of right now, at least, neither of us have coronavirus.
0: That. Uh, that is very... Very true. Uh, I don't have it. You don't have it. Uh, no one that we know individually has it. Uh, but now I feel like we need to knock on wood.
1: All right, I just did it. Oh, okay, I'm glad just, you did it. Be- I just realized Charlie totally could have barked, and uh, he didn't. But that, that was almost exactly <laughs> what I was going to say
0: because I was like, "I'm glad you did it," because I'm not going to Max will freak out.
1: Uh, um, no, so you guys. Yeah, I actually was supposed to go to Italy um, at the end of March with a friend. And we we honestly weren't and aren't concerned about going like we were going to Rome. It's in northern Italy. It's not even in the area. But there were issues with returning back to work when we come back and like the requirement for self-quarantine and, you know, We don't both have jobs where we can work from home. And so it was going to be a really big issue. And so this was one of the most difficult decisions I think I've had to make, especially when it comes to travel, because y'all know how much I love travel. I travel all the time. I've never been to Rome. And this is a trip that me and this person have been planning for like 15 years. I mean, it was finally about to happen. And then we realized we needed to cancel I wasn't going to put her in the risk of, you know, the job situation and all of that. And we were coming up with, like, the deadlines for, like, if you don't cancel your Airbnb by this date, you don't get a refund. And we ended up being able to get, like, full refund with all of our stays, full refund on our flight, which was phenomenal because it was basic economy. Delta, thank you.
0: I am still shocked that y'all were able to... I mean, not last minute, last minute, but kind of last minute... Make all these changes and not get fucked.
1: I know. Y'all, the coronavirus, it's coming after us all, apparently.
0: I mean, just wash your fucking hands, people. But also, like, do that anyway. don't, like, touch your mouth or whatever.
1: Don't, like, scratch your butt and then touch your eyes, okay? That's
0: not how you get coronavirus. That's how you get
1: pink eye. That's exactly how you get pink eye, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You see someone with pink eye and you're like, "Mm, I know what you did.
0: There was poop in their eye. That's how they got it. (laughs)
1: Oh, my God. Um. But yeah, y'all stay safe. There's definitely like the media panic is everywhere. Just be smart. Yeah. Do the same things you do during flu season. Like wash your hands. Be careful. Clean up after yourself. I don't know. Be a decent human being. Don't sneeze into the air. Like cover your fucking mouth.
0: <laughs> I mean, true. Although many of my friends will say I'm that bitch who doesn't. I do. I sneeze into my elbow, but sometimes I'm bad at aiming my face and I just sneeze under my elbow. So I'm like, elbow to the nose, right? And then I sneeze in my friend's coffee. And she's like, well, I'm going to go get another one.
1: She's like, well, if asshole. Gets up and walks uh, away. Yes. Because we were
0: like chilling on the porch, like having coffee in the morning, hanging out. I sneeze in the coffee. She's like holding in her hand. She's like, ah. Okay, well, I guess I didn't want that anymore.
1: Well, you know what is not about the coronavirus? Um, this episode.
0: Uh, th- that That is true.
1: But we definitely might have to do some infectious diseases or something coming up because the Black Plague. Yes. Rats. God,
0: no. <laughs> Although it is sometimes really crazy to fall into that hole and it's like, in these four years, a third of the European population died. And if you look at, like, a population graph of the world, you can actually see a dip when the Black Death happened. And I'm like, oh my god.
1: It's terrifying. It's also, terrifying. When you said jump into the, the hole, all I could think of was, like, jumping into a hole filled with rats. So that image well, was definitely true. in my head.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, okay.
1: Well, like Tyler said, after this episode, we are recording a murder mini. And if you're wondering what's that where are those how do i get them join our patreon so if you hop on over to patreon we've got um this is like murder mini 42 that we're recording today those are posted every other week and it's just additional content more murders more of us our beautiful voices we know you love it but Mm -hmm. hop on over there it's also how you can support us and keep this podcast going and we love y'all and appreciate you for it always
0: Absolutely. And while you're checking that out, if you have not already, make sure to subscribe to us on whatever form you're listening to us right now. So Spotify, Apple Podcasts, any of those, hit that subscribe so you have easy access to all of our episodes and uh, all the new ones that come out every Tuesday.
1: So as you all know, we absolutely love HLN. And HLN is CNN's network that has, I mean, it's headline news is what HLN stands for. But in the evenings and stuff, they do a ton of true crime shows. Forensic Files too. we've obviously talked about that. Well, we had the opportunity to pre-screen or like pre-preview, whatever the phrase is, we got to watch it before everyone else, uh, another one of their shows. And this one is called Sex and Murder. And if you're listening to this episode the day it came out, uh, this just premiered last night. So definitely hop on over to HLN's like app um, or the CNN Go app and you can find this episode and check it out, Mm y'all. Um this show is gonna make you real scared of dating. So like I've told y'all, I think I'm just like gonna be a nun or something.
0: I mean, honestly, (laughs) it's really a great excuse. Why are you single? And I'm like, just watch this. Just watch this. That's why I'm single. Um, Also, if y'all are following us on social media or connect with us there, y'all have very much seen us talk about this. It is amazing.
1: Oh, it's so good. Um, And to backtrack a little bit, like what to tell people, like why are you not dating? I want to be like, uh, I spend like 95% of my time researching murder and stuff. I pretty much just don't trust people.
0: (laughs) That's absolutely true. Uh, But if you're wanting to know more about sex and murder, the little tidbit is that... Blurb. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. So in this new HLN original series, Sex and Murder, because it's a series, y'all. It's not just a one-off.
1: Oh, yeah. I didn't say that. It's totally a series.
0: Detectives uncover dirty secrets, scandalous sex affairs, online sex addictions, dangerous jealousy, and stunning twisted fantasies, which have all led to murder.
1: Which, and I feel like we've talked about this time and time again, like so much of relationships stuff leads to murder. So like, don't do it. I don't know. I mean, murder, I meant not relationships. Do, do yeah, relationships. Yeah. If you can succeed in those, all the more power to you. What are you doing? Teach me your ways.
0: For real. Just like <laughs> DM us. Be like, uh, this is how I met my whoever. And I'm like, okay, good. How can I use that?
1: Oh, you know what we're going to hear? Oh, I met them on XYZ. And I'm like, well, if those are all the things I've already done or don't want to do. So, okay.
0: <laughs> Fair. I think on that note, topic.
1: Let's talk about the topic.
0: So, um, I lost last week, so it was my turn to pick the topic, and I was like, you know what, it's been a hot second since we've, uh, done a decade's murder, so we're gonna move on into the 1990s murders.
1: Yep, it was time.
0: Again, it's one of those that, when I was doing research, and, I mean, the cursory Google, 1990s murders, did not remember or realize that, like, Jeffrey Dahmer... Active in the 90s. I always just picture that as very like 80s, but nope.
1: I know. Isn't that one crazy? That is one of the obviously most bizarre and super fucked up and horrible cases that happened in the 90s. But there are a lot that we've already done, like John Bonet, that was also the 90s. And so I will say, when I was trying to find my case, I was like, okay, well, what am I going to do that we haven't already done? And unfortunately, slash fortunately, however you want to look at it, there's plenty. I had no trouble once I actually started looking.
0: Uh, same. Yeah, with my case, I wanted to take a little little bit of a different spin on it. But yeah, this episode, we're going into murders in the 1990s.
1: All right. Well, before we go into murder, let's go into wine. What wine did you pick this week?
0: So if I'm being honest, uh, I'm a little scared of this wine.
1: I'm really scared of your wine.
0: So, it was one that I saw. It was on sale, and I was like, ooh, I'm going to grab that. Uh, definitely not a normal wine that I would grab. It is the Beso del Sol Sparkling White from Valdepeña, Spain. And, um, y'all, I'll get into the review in a sec, but <laughs> high level overview. This wine, normally, uh, the sign above it that was like, it's on sale said that it was normally seven bucks, but now it's three dollars. But I also saw on the website that they're like, suggested price, $12. So I have no idea how much this costs. So this is a sparkling white wine with all-natural peach and mango flavors. It is one of those. And the review that I found, here we go. If new car smell had a taste, this would be it. Aromas of peach gummy candy, lemon-lime soda, green apple Jolly Rancher, new sneakers, magic marker, and every Snapple poured together into a giant punch bowl with some Red Bull tossed in just for fun. This calls out Sugar bomb just by smell, and that smell carries a long way out of the glass. This tastes like fruit-scented erasers, Pixie Sticks, Fun Dip, and Laffy Taffy. It is chemically abhorrent, and I don't think I can even finish a glass without gagging. so that's the wine i'm about to drink but i also have a backup boda box just in case
1: i'm thinking you're gonna need that and this is what happens when you buy three dollar wines although to be fair that's not exactly the case we i was with our mom one time and she had found a tempranillo that was on sale for like three bucks she bought a bottle of it and it was good it wasn't as good as the tempranillo we had just been drinking which is maybe like a $12 bottle but we drank it like it wasn't bad enough to to not drink and um, I mean we know the lovely two buck chuck but I'm scared of eraser marker pixie stick red bull jolly rancher wine you're about to have yeah same well pop the bottle it's a it's like a very colorful bottle isn't it yeah it
0: is like a completely covered in a label it's all white and then has I don't know colors everywhere it's a lot all right, let's see if uh it uh, is loud and pops. Like I hope it is. Oh my god.
1: <laughs> it's real stuck oh, in the there. Oh, the cork's in there. Wow, you're struggling. Oh god, Tyler, that's Oh, he's y'all, he's using his teeth right now. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That was the weirdest thing to watch and I should have been taking a video. I'm so, I'm so mad at myself. So,
0: yeah, pull that out with my teeth. Let's see what she looks like. That's a uh It's just kind of a very yellow, uh, like dehydrated pea sparkling (laughs) wine. Oh, those bubbles went away quick.
1: So you used like a very disgusting way to describe the color. You could have just said it's like the color of cider. Like you didn't have to go real nasty.
0: Oh, shit. Y'all, I think I just got diabetic from smelling it.
1: Can you still smell it now that you've pulled the glass away from your face?
0: Yes, actually.
1: I asked that because the review was just like smells like sugar all the time.
0: Oh dear lord! Well, I guess while this uh, aerates, uh, what wine are you doing?
1: One better than yours, I can tell you that.
0: Not a high bar.
1: (laughs) No, I don't mean to shit all over the sugar water, but um, so I did the or I'm going to do. I've never had this one before. The 2017 Piccolo is that an F? Fiore, yeah, it's an F. Sorry, I was looking like directly at the label and I was like, is that a T or an F? Because it's in like this pretty scripty. So it's the Picciolo Fiore. It is a terre Sicilian. Um, So it's a red wine from Sicily in Italy. And I'm really looking forward to it. I accidentally left it in the fridge for a little bit too long. So (laughs) yeah, I messed it up there. But this is a very rich wine with very lingering flavors of ripe plum and dark berry. And it's from like some of these hillside vineyards that benefit Sicily's perfect mix of sun and sea or benefit from. And it pairs really well with pasta because it's Italian wine. So it better pair with pasta. Polenta, Sicilian, Peperonata. Sauce. Sorry, guys, I said that way wrong. It's pepperonata, actually. I don't know how so it would be. Um, And olives. It's good with olives. It's also a, I believe, sustainable uh, winery. It just says on the back that trusted viticulture practices minimize environmental impact by promoting healthy soils and conserving water. And it asks you to recycle. So, okay, I'm looking forward to this one. I've never had a terra Sicilian. And I hope I'm saying that right. But Hey, so I'm going to get into this. Okay. I've got new wine opener. Oh, and what I didn't tell you, this was a $9 bottle. Not too shabby, and I got it at Whole Foods. So if you literally go to Whole Foods, go to the Italian section, look at the very bottom shelf of the Reds. That's where this one is. Yep.
0: Bottom (laughs) shelf wine.
1: It's absolutely bottom shelf wine. So
0: Bottom shelf prices with a top shelf quality. That's our promise to you.
1: What is this, Walmart wine?
0: Uh, Ah, (laughs) move. Great value brand, Merlot.
1: All right, let's see what this looks like. Lighter. That is light. That is pretty light. When I hold it up to the light, I can kind of see through it. I almost smell cherries. Ooh. So like similar to a Sangiovese. Oh,
0: interesting.
1: Which I have no idea what grapes are in this, so it's a surprise to you and me.
0: All right. Well, I say let's get into this wine and cheers. Cheers.
1: I'm scared for you.
0: Me too. Oh. Oh. <laughs> okay. That's... No.
1: <laughs> I've never seen you spit out wine like that. Okay. Describe it.
0: It's like, uh, oh god, it's like you had a bag of gummy worms in your car, and it's the summer, and they all melted, but they were organic, so it was real fruit, and they a little bit started to
1: rot. (laughs) And you drank them?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Okay. I'm gonna hop out of this for a hot sec and go grab my Boda Box. Yeah, we're
1: gonna take a quick little this. break while I drink my wine and Tyler vomits. Oh,
0: <laughs> Jesus. Y'all, I knew that was gonna probably not be great. I have never in my life had a, a wine like that, so... Uh, yeah, so now I'm drinking Bodabox. It's a cab. I love it. Y'all love it. It's great. Tell me, tell me about your wine.
1: Oh my god, do you need to like rinse your mouth out with your Bodabox before <laughs> I even tell you about this? Because
0: uh, no, I I think I'll
1: survive. Okay, this is a really, really good wine. It's definitely, it has to have some Sangiovese in it because I very much am tasting flavors similar to that with like the bright cherry, the earthy notes. It's not heavy at all. It's a nice, like, light to medium bodied wine that literally would pair with any type of Italian fare that you want to eat. So... Mm. Literally, this one would also be, like, great with some tapas. Like, if you wanted to, like, have Italian wine and Spanish tapas, this would be phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Definitely think of it, like, um, with some crackers, with, like, some tympanade. Isn't that the olives? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to be eating right now. And then, like, some um, brie. Let's just, like, mix all the fucking countries together and talk about my favorite foods.
0: And you know what? We're going to top it with a piece of bratwurst.
1: No, I don't want to do that.
0: Well, thankfully, uh, I'm now... Happy with my wine, uh, <laughs> Jesus. But okay.
1: Well, we have our wine. You now have one that is drinkable, consumable, yeah. able to go down. And I have this delicious Italian red. Delicious. That is absolutely what I just said.
0: That that is.
1: <laughs> I have a delicious Italian red. So now I want to hear about your case from the nineties. What'd you pick?
0: So the case I picked is the Centennial Olympic Park bombing.
1: You always do the bombings. They're always brutal, dude.
0: They're intense. And this one is no different.
1: I mean, it's a bomb. Of course it's not. Uh, fair. Okay. You're right.
0: So the sources I used, uh, the Wikipedia article for the Centennial Olympic Park bombing, an article from history by Becky Little, and then an uh, article from CNN that was like the quick timeline kind of thing. So I couldn't find an author. Um. Okay. So I'm gonna set the stage. We're in Atlanta and the 1996 Summer Olympics are like in full swing. It's the middle of the Olympics. And Centennial Olympic Park, it's this like, basically it's designed as like the town square of the Olympics. Um, It's this huge park. It's still there in Atlanta. It has like fountains and statues and grass and it's just the kind of come together place. And At this very moment, there are thousands of people that are there for like a late concert by the band Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. I I have no fucking idea who that is. But they're apparently big enough in 1986 to draw a crowd of thousands.
1: I mean, yeah, you never heard of them? Just kidding, neither have I. But definitely sounds like a (laughs) 90s band name if I ever had to guess.
0: That is very true. So just a little bit after Midnight... A guy planted this, like, green military pack, like, I'm picturing a duffel bag, that contained three pipe bombs, and they were all surrounded by three-inch-long nails in the bag, and he puts that under a bench near where the concert's happening, and walks away.
1: Why do these people always put bombs by benches?
0: You know, I don't know. I guess maybe it's a little less conspicuous.
1: Like, I guess you can just kind of, like, sit down, chill, just leave your bag, and then walk away. I don't know. Yeah. It's also, I only recently found out what a pipe bomb actually looks like. I didn't. I didn't realize it was literally just, the pipe is what's holding all the stuff inside. Yeah. I don't know how I didn't make that connection. I just thought it was, you know, because you know how some things are like called something, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what it's made out of or what it looks like? Yes. kind of thought it was something like that. It's very much not.
0: No, they are very much the what their name is and very much homemade. So, an FBI agent, David Johnson, he received a notice, he's in like the Atlanta field office uh, there, and he gets notice that someone had called 911 at about one o two in the morning and warned that there was going to be a bomb that goes off in the park in the next 30 minutes. The caller said, there is a bomb in Centennial Park, you have 30 minutes. That's all they said.
1: That's and, cryptic.
0: Yeah. And the call was made from a payphone that was pretty near to the park, but that's all they got. At the same time that's happening, a security guard named Richard Jewell, he's just doing his normal stuff, being a security guard in the park, and he sees this bag underneath the bench. And so he called the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, like the Georgia State FBI, and was like, oh shit, I'm not taking any chances. And so they called in the bomb squad to investigate it. And at the same time, they're like, calling the bomb squad Bomb Squad's on the way. Richard Jewell's like, we need to get people out of here. This is, like, right next to the concert. We need to evacuate this shit.
1: I just realized why... Because you're saying all this. I'm like, why does this sound so familiar? I've never read about this. There's the movie with Kathy Bates that just yes. came out. Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, it came
0: out, like, three or four months ago. And, yeah, it's based on Richard Jewell, his life, and this
1: so i haven't seen that movie but uh i really want to and i i don't know everything about this story but i'm sorry i was like sitting here racking my brain like why does this sound so familiar and that's why boom because my girl kathy bates love her
0: yes yeah i haven't seen the movie either but i've heard it's really good it got nominated for a couple oscars i think
1: didn't clint eastwood direct it
0: he did richard Jewell. He and the other security guards in the area, they're evacuating everyone and clearing the area so that when the bomb squad gets there, they can investigate. And just like two to three minutes into the evacuation, so people are still there, people like getting out of the way, the bomb detonates.
1: I was hoping they were getting, oh god, I was hoping that wouldn't happen.
0: They got a lot of people out of there, but not everyone. The bomb wound up killing one person directly and another person indirectly. So Alice Hawthorne, who was 44, she was killed when a nail, one of the pieces of shrapnel in it, went through her head. And then a Turkish cameraman, Meli Uzunyo, who was 40... He actually had a heart attack running towards the scene. Because remember, like, yes, this is Atlanta, but it's in the middle of the Olympics. Like, the Mm -hmm. Olympics, I think, have been going on for a week or so. They still have, like, a week left. So it's very much an international audience there. Yes. And the bomb also wound up wounding 111 other people. Oh,
1: my God. I'm glad there weren't more fatalities.
0: And it's, it's thanks to Richard Jewell. Because he found it and was able to start the evacuation, he saved hundreds of people who yeah. would have been killed.
1: Oh my god. And it's so interesting to me how pipe bombs are not very big. They're pretty, like, small. I mean, this was in, what, like a paper yeah. bag or whatever?
0: And like a duffel
1: bag. Like a, Oh, a duffel bag. But it's, I, d- I don't know, something so tiny can still do so much damage. And that is a way, like, in my head that I can think of, like... Like, for example, the Oklahoma City bombing, which is one I know we bring up a lot, but that bomb was much larger and it destroyed, you know, half of a building. Actually, it destroyed multiple Mm -hmm. buildings. But, like, as far as the main damage, it was the federal building. But, yeah, that just, the amount of force, it's just this, like, it's very interesting.
0: Well, because it's so destructive and also not something we really, or at least for me, really understand. Right. A gun or a knife. I'm like, yeah, I see how that works and stuff. But like a bomb, just the scale of the destruction it can cause and what it is. I'm like, how? Yeah. So immediately after this, Richard Jewell is praised as a hero for saving all these lives. But pretty quickly after, things kind of take a turn. On July 30th of 96, just a few days after, Richard Jewell was actually named by the local Atlanta paper as a suspect in the bombing.
1: Really? Not as
0: the hero who saved everyone. Yeah. And, I mean, through all this, he is denying any role in it. Because, basically, the thought was that he planted it and then, like, pointed it out because he wanted to be this hero. That was that was just, like, this conspiracy he'd created to look good.
1: Which, that is such an accusation to make. Like, I, I, I guess I could see, but also... That's a quick... I'm I'm just curious, like, what evidence do they have to, like, make this accusation of him?
0: And that's exactly right. Like, it's an accusation because he was named as a person of interest, but he was never arrested. Oh. But even still, just being named, I mean, his house was searched, his background was, like, drilled into completely, and he also just became the subject of this intense media scrutiny, like... There were cameramen and news crews outside his house at all times, always. And he was the news story. Him, his background, everything, like, everywhere.
1: So this is literally because he became a suspect, I guess, because he found the bomb first. But that's that's literally mm-hmm. it? Like, there's nothing? Yeah. What? Okay, so this is... I knew that he was accused of it, just, like, from the movie preview and what I from what I know about this case, but I've always been like, but like, how and why? And now I'm realizing that is the center question.
0: Yeah. And this went on for three months, because it wasn't until the end of October of that year that the US Justice Department like came out and was like, he's not a suspect in this anymore. But then the case just went cold for two years. That's what I was gonna say. Then like, who
1: did it? Like, what were their next steps?
0: I mean, at this point, the FBI, they didn't have any other suspects after he was cleared. And it wasn't until early 97, so a few months after this, that things started to trickle a little bit. And that was because there were two more bombings that happened. One was at an abortion clinic and one was at a gay nightclub. Oh. Uh, and both these were in the Atlanta area. The When the investigators like went to these places, saw the bombs, they saw a lot of similarities and like, how the bombs were made and so they were like oh shit we have a serial bomber
1: this sounds very politically driven with these locations that they're picking the olympics which is very diverse an abortion clinic which is something that's there's a lot of debate and a gay nightclub again lots of debates
0: uh yeah you hit it right on the nose yeah it just
1: well when you said those other two places and i put the three together i'm like okay political motivations are obvious here
0: yes And one thing to note, though, before these other bombings, the theory was that this was like a one-off thing. It was a lone wolf dude. yeah, And that was it. So now there's this reality that, no, there's a serial bomber amongst us. And that terrified everyone. And then there was another bombing. Uh, This time was at an abortion clinic in Birmingham, Alabama. And this one, the, like, one at the nightclub and the other clinic in Atlanta No one died. People were just injured. But at this one, there was a policeman who worked as a security guard who was killed. And then a nurse who worked there, Emily Lyons, she was very seriously injured and, like, almost died. But it was this bombing that gave them enough evidence and clues to find out who was behind all of this. Because in this one, they had a partial license plate.
1: Oh, like, from his car? Or their car? Yeah, like,
0: I think from security cameras or something. Oh,
1: okay. We were talking about bombs, and I was thinking it was literally a partial piece Fair. of the license plate.
0: No, they, I think it was, like, on a surveillance video, but they had that. Because of the plate numbers and also some of the other clues they had, the FBI was able to identify Eric Robert Rudolph. He is just this, like, handyman carpenter dude, and it's him.
1: Oh my god.
0: But before he was able to get captured, he escaped. And he became a fugitive. And not even just like, oh, he's on the run. He literally went and hid in like the rural Appalachian Mountains. Like, in the fucking woods and hills.
1: Well, I see he was a legit fugitive. Like, he was like, I'm gonna go make it on my own in the woods. Wait, no, he did, like, the Unabomber thing, because he went into the woods, too. I mean, he had a, yeah. like a cabin, right?
0: Um, I don't think this guy had a cabin. No, no,
1: no, I meant the Unabomber. He had a cabin.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, funny you mention that. I did not realize until just a few years ago that this wasn't the Unabomber. I always thought the Unabomber was involved with the Olympic bombings. Nope.
1: Well, and that's the thing. All of the cases that happened in, like, the 80s and 90s, like, if it was a bombing, the automatic thought was, was this a Unabomber? Because he was active between, like, late 70s to mid-90s. And so it was a really long span of time. And, like, he was doing so much. Ted Kaczynski Mm -hmm. was crazy. Yeah. Like, just with his ability to do this for so long without being captured and because of his long span of success he inspired a lot of other people so
0: that's terrifying it's
1: absolutely horrifying but it is it is a fact like we've i i mean wasn't timothy mcveigh inspired by him and then there was this manifesto timothy mcveigh is another like monster i don't even we don't even need to get into that but
0: Well, we're about to get into a little bit of it. Oh
1: my god. This
0: entire episode has been you like saying things and stuff that I'm like, I'm literally about to bring that up in like two minutes.
1: I promise (laughs) I don't know this case.
0: (laughs) I think you're just a witch.
1: I'm not a witch. Okay, maybe I am.
0: Okay, I'm like, that's not a bad thing. That's cool.
1: I am a cool witch.
0: I'm the one from Hocus Pocus who rides a vacuum. Okay, yes. But um, yeah, he was not a witch. He was a fugitive. And the FBI actually named him as one of the 10 most wanted fugitives. And there was a million dollar reward for any info that could lead to him being arrested. And he was officially the suspect in all four of these bombings.
1: I'm wondering what is going through Richard Jewell's mind during all of this, where he is literally like, see i
0: fucking told y'all it wasn't me y'all have
1: already destroyed my life thank you very much
0: yeah but i think also on the other hand if he's interviewed on the news the headline under him is probably like richard Jewell, former bombing suspect or something
1: i know like that's what i'm saying they have already like completely ruined his life and he's never going to be able to I don't know this. This is me totally like shooting the shit. But I would feel like it would be very difficult to overcome that type of adversity after being even just a suspect.
0: Oh, absolutely. Like
1: this, I'm sure, ruined his life.
0: I don't understand how it couldn't.
1: This is why er. jumping. Yeah, no, that's right. You don't understand yeah. how it couldn't ruin his life. Um, this is why jumping to such accusations and conclusions is so dangerous for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And like the whole like tunnel vision, you narrow in on someone who where you were absolutely convinced did it, it blinds you from being able to see any other suspect. And that is exactly what happened to him.
0: A hundred percent. I am
1: so glad to hear that there was an actual suspect found.
0: Finally, yeah. And he was identified and they and he was on the run and he avoided being captured for five years.
1: Okay, this case is a lot longer than I thought it was.
0: Yeah, he, he spent five years hiding in the woods. And so, okay, why did he do this? Brittany kind of touched on it earlier with, you know, kind of these extremist views and... Yeah. A lot like Timothy McVeigh, who did the Oklahoma City bombing. Eric Rudolph, he's former military, he's a far-right extremist, and he uses violence. He said he bombed the Olympics because he wanted to embarrass the U.S. on the world stage because the U.S. legalized abortion. And it's not common. is not the right word, but... I did not realize his bombing the abortion clinic in Birmingham that killed the police officer, that was the first deadly bombing of an abortion clinic in the US.
1: Is it bad if I say I'm surprised it hadn't already happened?
0: Uh, same. Because, I mean, since I've grown up and been aware, that's like a thing. Yeah. It's like a trope, I guess. But that was the first one in the late 90s. Eric Rudolph, he did act alone in all of this but he was part of this like growing trend of violent far-right extremism like timothy mcveigh and the federal government was aware of this of this like far-right extremist movement that was violent they were that was on their radar but at the time the local law enforcement Not specifically here, but local law enforcement in general didn't really see attacks on like abortion clinics and the Olympics as really a bigger part of domestic terrorism overall. It was more seen as like events, like isolated. This place was attacked, not having the like overarching connections. And I think that's a huge reason. Why the idea of a serial bomber doing this was not really one they had until they had the actual evidence of, like, oh shit, these bombs made by the same person. Yeah. So, in part of this, when they're working to find him and capture him, the local law enforcement and the FBI and the ATF, they started working together and collaborating in ways that had never really been done before in law enforcement. This, unfortunately, didn't really start happening and picking up until after 9-11. And that was when federal officials started sharing like a lot more info with law enforcement about these extremist ideas and when they really started to kind of get together on the same page mm-hmm. when it comes like domestic terrorism
1: It's one of those things that I feel like domestic terrorism has been around like forever but we didn't start labeling it until recently Yeah Like it's something that has always I mean, existed
0: Yeah yes No you're absolutely right cuz I think the first I mean granted I'm also 26 years old But to me, the first, like, mention of specifically domestic terrorism I always see is the Oklahoma City bombing in 95. And there are loads of events that happened way before that that I feel like just aren't labeled as such
1: exactly the
0: african-american church in birmingham that was bombed by the dudes from the kkk that's absolutely domestic terrorism and i think it is labeled as such now
1: but at the time but no
0: yeah i I don't think it was i don't think so either seen as i do think it was oh Uh, yes
1: yes no it was but i'm talking like the actual label being given to it at the time i think that is a mm -hmm. more recent terminology i yeah i mean shit it's similar to serial killer There were serial killers in the 1800s. They weren't called that. It was called like multiple murders. And there was never- Which is just
0: not as catchy. It's
1: not as catchy. And it's also not as definitive. Like it doesn't define those individuals and what drives them to do what they did. It's more so instead of analyzing the person who did it and the why, it's the outcome of like, and they did this, 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 and this. You're missing that whole psychology part.
0: Absolutely. So I mentioned this collaboration- That's starting to form and just new way of dealing and looking at things between, like, federal law enforcement and local law enforcement. And, I mean, that's kind of how things are run nowadays. Like, this changed everything. And it also is the reason he was caught. That Eric Rudolph was caught. Was because of this collaboration and training and shit. Because in May of 2003, this rookie cop named Jeff Postel... He is, you know, doing his normal, like, patrol routine ship. and he sees this dude digging through a trash can in Murphy, North Carolina, and he's like, what the fuck is going on? But... Because he had received these briefings and stuff about Eric Rudolph specifically, he knew that this dude was somewhere in the mountains out here and knew that he would be like scavenging for shit because he's literally like fucking hiding in the woods. And so he sees this rando dude digging in the trash can. And at first he's like, is there a burglary happening? Like, what the fuck? And then with this training and information he has, he's like, oh my holy shit. That's
1: fucking him.
0: And so that's how Eric Rudolph was caught.
1: Wow. Training is always a good idea. Let's just say it together. Yes. Training is always a good idea in every job you ever do any... Oh my God. Train your people.
0: Train your people and collaborate. Collaboration and communication have never been a bad thing. That's your little dose of HR for today. It's
1: also your little dose of how to live life. Like,
0: mm-hmm. seriously.
1: Communication and collaboration are how you have happy days.
0: That's so real. I know. And not
1: that it sounded like cheesy, but like literally that's the truth.
0: I mean, it's cheesy, but so much in life is cheesy as
1: fuck. And it doesn't mean it's not reliable and true and something to like be like, yes. Like one of the things that's super cheesy and like so like, oh, that's a fucking cliche everything happens for a reason. But that is literally, like, my life, like, line is what I was going to say. But it's, like, my motto. That's the word I'm looking for. Because if you can't look at life that way with, like, everything happens for a reason, then it makes everything a whole hell of a lot more difficult. So I choose to look at oh. it as everything happens for a reason.
0: Oh, I have a complete different view, view viewpoint on that. Because, for me at least, the everything happens for a reason, I'm like, eh, whatever. But I think everything happens for a reason if you make that happen
1: well and it's something i think you can't really in the moment be like okay this is happening for a reason because the moment's happening and we'll take a negative experience for example and you're just like pissed you're like ugh, fuck everything yeah but a few years down the road you learn okay well if this hadn't happened then this this and this would never have happened and i wouldn't be where i am and hey, maybe that's True. also a way to justify our decisions, but it's all about perspective. Like, that's that's what I'm getting at. It's all about your perspective on these types of things. Oh,
0: totally with you. Same page. I just, for me personally, I feel like it's one of those things happen for a reason if you, like, put the effort and work into making that a reason to change for the future. Because I feel like, you know, you you lose your job and... You're like, holy shit, this is the worst fucking thing ever. But if you're like, you know what? I'm going to learn from what's happening right now and move forward. And then a year or two down the line, you look back and you're like, wow, I wouldn't be where I am without that because of the effort and stuff i put in
1: i agree i love how we had took two different perspectives of the same thing for a second there i was worried you were like shitting on my motto and i was gonna be like dude like i just said i live my life by this and you're like <laughs> no, no that's no. wrong <laughs> but no no i, I just i have
0: a little asterisk at the end of it that adds a couple more words that
1: adds when you put effort Boom. anyway okay sorry so this police officer because of his fantastic training rookie or not mm-hmm. he knew his shit and he caught eric rudolph <laughs>
0: he fucking caught this dude. And then on April 13th of 2005, Eric Rudolph pled guilty to the bombing in Birmingham, Alabama, and then the three bombings in the Atlanta area. And when he did that, he also released a fucking 11-page statement that he blamed all of this on the fact that the U.S. legalized abortion. And I'm like, it's it's another one similar to uh, the case I did, the mass shooting at the Polytechnic University in Montreal, where I uh, don't actually give a fuck to read your statement. Like, no. no. I mean, I actually totally didn't even read his statement at all. No,
1: don't waste your eyes like, on those words.
0: I'm like, cool. Yeah, but don't blame it on that. Uh, blame it on yourself. You did this. That's on you, dude. And then just like a little over a week later, on August 22nd, he was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences plus 120 years in prison for these bombings. One thing that is, I would say, really ironic that his sister-in-law was quoted as saying, she spoke about the irony that his plea deal, like pleading guilty and getting prison stuff, it put him in the custody of this government that he hates so much. And she was quoted as saying, knowing that he's living under government control for the rest of his life, I think that's worse to him than death.
1: Honestly, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm like, bye, bitch. I want to circle back to Richard Jewell.
1: Yeah. What's the update on him? Like, what? Tell me.
0: There was a Justice Department investigation of, like, how the FBI handled looking into Richard Jewell. And they actually found out that FBI agents... Had tried to manipulate Joel into waiving his constitutional rights. What? Yeah, they told him that, oh, you're just taking part in like a training video about bomb detection because, you know, you found this one, you're kind of the face of it, so we want to do that. But in order to get him to like not request a lawyer and like be able to basically interrogate him without him having his fucking rights. But the report did conclude that. No intentional violation of his rights and no criminal misconduct had happened, which I'm like, bull fucking shit. Sounds
1: like it's the exact opposite of the findings. They did do those things.
0: Uh, yeah. So again, Richard Jewell, he was never officially charged, but his life was completely turned upside down. The FBI very publicly searched through his house two different times, questioned all of his friends, all the people he'd ever worked with, everyone who knew him dove into his background, and then also kept him under 24-hour surveillance. And the only reason they started to let up from this is because one of his attorneys hired an ex-FBI agent to give him like a polygraph test, and he passed it, and he's like, I'm not fucking lying. And it took that for them to ease up a little. Oh my god. So after he was exonerated completely cleared of any suspicion he actually filed lawsuits against some of the media outlets that had been libeling him and talking about him as this terrorist and this bomber and he's like i didn't fucking do anything and y'all ruined my reputation in my life yeah and all of the uh, like lawsuits he went through the news media outlets did like give him a formal public apology and go through that and he was also like this isn't about the money He's like, I'm not suing NBC and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for money. It was about clearing his own name. Yeah. But on August 29th of 2007, when he was 44 years old, Richard Jewell died from complications related to uh, diabetes that he had. But uh, there is no part of me that does not think that this intense pressure played no role in it. It. I'm, like, I'm sure it did. Yeah. And uh, that is my case. That is the Centennial Olympic Park bombing.
1: Well, and that level of accusation, that impacts your your body physically and mentally so much. Oh, yeah. I just, of course, it played a part. Wow. That is one of the most <laughs> intense cases I've heard in a while that was a bombing type case. Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't even really know. I'm just like going to say wow again because I don't even know how to respond except now i really want to go watch that movie and i'm hurting for him same
0: if any of y'all have seen the movie messages us, let us know your thoughts but yeah i i liked that in this i really wanted in this uh to bring it back to him because he is absolutely one of the victims here totally. and now he's known for being like wrongfully accused right but that's his reputation i oh, know still like, even even after he's been exonerated and after everything, his reputation is not as the hero who saved hundreds of people from dying, it's as someone who was falsely accused.
1: And that is so heartbreaking, because it's like, instead of being known as the man who saved hundreds, he's known as the man mm. who was, like you were just saying, like, uh, he didn't do it.
0: But yeah. God. So, think about fucking Richard Jewell, who was a goddamn hero. Yeah. Remember him. All right, so Brittany... Tell me about the case that you picked for today's episode, while well, I have the amazing opportunity to sit back, chill, drink wine that is not whatever the fuck I put in my mouth earlier.
1: <laughs> um, If you think you're going to get to, like, chill, that's absolutely inaccurate.
0: Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe poor choice of words.
1: So I did the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and his wife, Carla Homolka.
0: Oh, okay, this... Uh, which I feel like is pretty unusual for me. This is a case uh, that I know quite well, and honestly, the Canadian cases that you do are intense. I mean, there was the previous one that was the subject of "Don't Kill Cats," uh, which we're not going to touch on him at all because that still gives me nightmares. Oh, well, I, and then, I, I will um, a little bit, sorry. Oh joy. Although all I was going uh, to say,
1: and I could just say it right now get it out of the way because that was luca magnata and i was gonna say like i've talked about carla homolka before because there was this rumor going around that he was dating her and once i tell you about this case if you don't know her story already then you'll understand like why that was so like salacious and like what the actual fuck they weren't dating it was another one of his bullshit Things that he did. But if you want to listen to the most disturbing episode I've ever done, that's it. I can't remember what episode that is, but it was what was me our either. topic even?
0: It was uh, like armchair detectives or people who solved uh, crimes online. Yeah, it's
1: only like 10 episodes ago. So you should be able to scroll back on like Apple Podcasts and find that one pretty easily. That one, no, that was real rough for me. Yeah. I, we have done a lot of really messed up things. And for some reason, that one just made me feel really sick.
0: That is uh, your. That's your Georgia Cruz. Yes. Which is a case I did in episode like seven or nine or something that still haunts me to this fucking day. Oh, God. Okay. But another Canadian one you did, uh, the serial killer. Yeah, that was... Who was killing like the gay men in Toronto. And
1: burying them in potted plants because he was like a landscaper. Hey, God. Canadians, what the
0: fuck? You're either like the stereotypically nice... Just, like, kind people or some of the most heinous murderers I've ever heard of. But then, as I said that, I totally understood the irony of me, an American, saying that. But,
1: you know. I know. I was about to say, all of our Canadian listeners right now are like, uh, excuse me, America, what the fuck? Because it's just like, uh, excuse me, human race, what the fuck?
0: Honestly, yeah. I I think America, what the fuck, all the time. And humans, what the fuck.
1: (sighs) On, like, a daily basis. (sighs)
0: Yeah. But, you know, whenever you're feeling like that... Uh, There are so many lists out there that are, like, lists that show people aren't actually as fucked up as we all think. And it's just a bunch of different rando stories about, like, this dude created a company and donated shoes to people. Or, like, this guy rescued a dog who had, like, fallen into a lake and was drowning. And I'm like, yay. There
1: is good in this world.
0: There is. There is. Yes, there is. But... With that, let's talk about, yeah, dive into your case and tell them about something that is very much not good in this world. Yes.
1: Uh, So the sources I used, an article from All That's Interesting by Gina DeMuro and an article from the Investigation Discovery blog Crime Feed by Leah Egan. Paul was this handsome man from Canada, and he met a younger girl who was just as equally attractive in 1987. And no one, even their closest friends, would ever have predicted that they would one day be known as the Ken and Barbie killers.
0: You know, to be fair, because I feel like that's a line you hear all the time, like, friends and family had no idea. But literally. If you if you had a friend or someone that you're like, I bet they're going to be a serial killer. You're probably not going to want to be friends with that person. Or at least stop so being friends with them. True.
1: Paul Bernardo was born on August 27, 1964 in Ontario, Canada. And his family was very financially well off. They were a very stable middle class family. And in 1975, Kenneth Bernardo, so Paul's dad, was charged with child molestation. And there were rumors that he had even molested his own daughter. But Paul did not really seem to be affected by this really dark event that happened in his childhood. And people that observed him, they, they said he was like always happy, he was a young boy, and he smiled a lot.
0: That is the reddest of red flags
1: yeah not all kids uh who smile like that is also not something you can judge like okay this is gonna sound terrible but it's like just because someone's like happy and smiling does not mean they're happy and that there's not something going on yeah we as people are really good at disguising how we actually feel even when we're children It wasn't until he was about 16 years old when his mom told him that he was actually the result of an extramarital affair that Paul's outward behavior began to change pretty noticeably. He went off to study for college at the University of Toronto, and he became pretty skilled at picking up women in bars, only later to humiliate them and beat them. Oh
0: my god.
1: He was this really charming guy and this was a very unfortunate combination and he used this to his advantage and he would manipulate women and he he would take them off guard. They would have no idea. And this is what I'm just going to coin the Ted Bundy effect because that's exactly like what, what this is. I mean,
0: essentially right now is the equivalent of Google being like, did you mean Ted Bundy?
1: 100% because like Paul is doing this same shit and it's also like not long after Bundy was caught and like all this shit so behind like his good looks and his like really charming personality he was really dabbling with some pretty dark fantasies of rape and torture so again literally fucking Ted Bundy this is the Canadian Ted Bundy essentially but not yeah but not really once I get to the other things where carla comes into play but I'll, if, if paul were solo in all of this then canadian ted buddy so in may of 1987 so yes i will say i realize this is an episode about the 90s but uh paul was doing some shit for a long time so we're starting in 87 in 87 in the suburb of scarborough in ontario in the early hours of may 4th 1987 a young woman was getting off the bus and she was grabbed and brutally raped right near her parents' home. So she was almost home. Over the next week alone, there would be two more similar assaults. All of these women were between the ages of 15 and 21. So they're very young. And all the attacks included beatings, very intense verbal abuse, dire threats to discourage them from going to the police. Just all of these things that are just beyond degrading. Finally, because of the similarities, police believed they were all committed by the same man. And so the newspapers, because of course the media has to give these people a name when we don't know who they are, they quickly dubbed this person the Scarborough Rapist. At the time, Paul was a salesman by trade. And so he was using his skills that he learned at work to lure his female victims using like pickups and pitches. This was stuff he was using in his day job. How fucking sick is that?
0: Oh, I know listeners, I know y'all cannot see my face. I'm horrified. That is worse than texting your apartment locator that about a murder. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's <laughs> like
1: it's worse than a lot of things.
0: I mean, yes. But also my absolute first thought when you said that is like, oh, he's attractive. Of course he's a fucking salesperson.
1: It was basically like he studied how to entice women the same way he studied like how to do well in business. So during this nearly five-year rampage as a Scarborough rapist, Paul raped or attempted to rape at least 19 young women. And this is only the official count. There could definitely be more.
0: I am absolutely positive there are more. Me too. Sexual assault and rape are so underreported. I mean, I'm positive there are so many more victims
1: me too um and like i said these victims were all like very young women he would often grab them at bus stops however there was one 15 year old who was attacked in her own bedroom so he like broke in and attacked
0: oh shit
1: and what makes this even hard to digest is that Paul was actually questioned by the police two times, but never named as an official suspect. So he was, he was a Um, It wasn't until God. May of 1990, one of his victims was finally able to give police an accurate description of the attacker. But by then, the Scarborough rapist had become even more unhinged. Like there are other things going on by 1990. So this is where Carla Homolka actually I mean she comes into the picture before that sentence but Carla and Paul met in 1987 he was 23 years old and she was only 17 Carla was born to Dorothy and Carol in Ontario in 1970, and she was the oldest of three siblings. Carla was described as this very well-adjusted, pretty, smart, and very popular girl. She was very fond of animals, and this eventually led to her working at a vet after high school. And like Paul, there was nothing in Carla's um, outward appearance or her life that looked like it was anywhere out of the ordinary. So Paul and Carla, they had this immediate attraction when they met, and it only intensified when Paul learned that unlike most of the girls he dated and most of the people in this fucking world, Carla shared these same six fantasies that he had. Also, how
0: do you even broach that topic?
1: I don't know. Like,
0: are you fucking watching Saw with your partner and you're like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, though, I kind of get it. That would be, like, it's, I know it's crazy, like, I would never, but, like, oh my god, I could totally see myself, like, making a thing like that, and they're like, honestly... I'm so glad you said that, because Sam, I, oh my god, I know I said I was kidding, but I want to kill people. <gasps> Bitch, me too, the fuck? Like, is is that, how, how does that conversation happen?
1: I don't know. I don't know how a lot of things come up, and, you know, it's definitely a risk. That first conversation, when they determined this uh, similarity the two of them had, that had to be one fucking conversation.
0: I mean, I can only imagine it is uh, a similar conversation to the, like, I'm totally joking, like, I'm totally not into this, unless you are, then I'm not joking.
1: Actually, that's very aligned with this, because the two of them quickly began a sadomasochistic relationship, and this is when Paul would act as the abusive master, and Carla was his willing slave. So, maybe they discovered this from some roleplay stuff. I mean, but... I don't know. The entire time that they dated, Paul was also brutally raping girls in Scarborough, And Carla knew about it, and she approved. Eventually, the two of them got engaged. But once they were, you know, like three years into their relationship, Paul was starting to get pretty bored. So they're engaged, Paul's bored, and their relationship is progressing. And Paul started to tease Carla about being used goods, since he wasn't her first sexual relationship. Which also, God, Paul is such garbage that it, I cannot even.
0: That- Whole entire concept of, like, someone is used because they've had sex. There are very few topics that will enrage me that much. Like, to the point it's one, I don't ever want to have a discussion about it because I will get mad. I mean, fucking people who use the tape analogy. You I mean, you stick it to multiple people and they're like, and then you see, it doesn't stick anymore. And that's what happens when women have sex. I'm like, it's always, they always focus on the women.
1: So... Paul started to complain to Carla that she wasn't a virgin. And so then he turned to seek his attentions elsewhere. And he started looking at her 15-year-old sister, Tammy. Um, And some reports say she was 14. So she was 14, 15. Way too young for him. But this was not the sickest part of the situation. Because instead of being really upset about it, Carla encouraged Paul's behavior. And she told Paul that she wanted him to have her little sister's virginity for a Christmas present. As if... Sex with someone is something you could give away.
0: I literally don't know how to
1: respond. I know. So on December 23rd, 1990, they were at a Christmas party at the Homolka family home. The two of them outlined plans to get Tammy really drunk so she wouldn't realize what was happening to her. When the night came... Tammy was definitely drinking, but she remained coherent. She wasn't drinking too much. Carla knew that she was not going to consent with sleeping with Paul. So she spiked her own sister's drink with animal anesthetics that she had stolen from the clinic where she worked. And so eventually Tammy is getting really like drowsy and dizzy and she wants to lay down, but she's still not passing out. And so Paul and Carla put halothane, which was a chemical, another one that Carla got from her job at the animal hospital. They put this over her mouth and nose until she passed out. So I think that's that, like, inhalant drug, like, chloroform that you, you breathe uh, in. Y-
0: yeah, that sounds right. Because that's the one you see in, like, movies and TV with, like, the rag. I'm so much stuck on, it's her little sister. And she is agreedly...
1: Doing any of this? Just, like,
0: coercing is not the right word, but, like facilitating that's the word facilitate she's facilitating her boyfriend or her fiance what the fuck ever raping her little sister (sighs) and i mean at this point she's the one drugging her and with honestly she's not facilitating she's absolutely a fucking part of it like what for anyone but
1: your little sister she's absolutely involved in this and like there's no part of her that seems to be showing any type of remorse The two of them took turns raping her while also videotaping this whole incident. And then all of a sudden, Tammy wakes up and she starts vomiting and choking on her vomit. And so Carla and Paul, like, they start scrambling. They're trying to cover, like, everything they were doing, hide evidence. They were dressing Tammy. They put her back in bed. And then they called 911 and the police arrived. All the while they were doing this shit, Tammy was still choking on her vomit and she never regained consciousness. She was pronounced dead at the hospital. Although there were these mysterious chemical burns on her face, and they were noted, the drugs in her system were never detected, and her death was ruled an accident because of choking on vomit from alcohol poisoning.
0: Oh my god.
1: Paul is reeling from the fact that he just got away with murder. And his dark fantasies, they just increased. So instead of discouraging him from killing, the murder of Tammy actually increased it. He enjoyed it so much and wanted to do it more. So in 1991, Carla lured another teenager that she befriended at work to the home that she shared with Paul. The two of them drugged the girl, abused her, videotaped it. Only this time, the um, Jane Doe, we, we don't know her name, she survived and she ended up waking up with no memory of what happened. Paul and Carla got married on June 29th, 1991, and this was the very same day that a couple was canoeing on Lake Gibson, and to their horror, they discovered concrete blocks containing human body parts in the water. The remains belonged to 14 year old Leslie Mahaffey, who disappeared on June 15th, so just a couple weeks prior. She'd been kidnapped by the Cannon Barbie killers, abused over the course of several days. She was choked to death, although, which one of them actually killed her remains a mystery. Paul insists that Carla killed Mahaffey out of jealousy, while Carla said that Paul squeezed the girl's throat so tight that she eventually expired from lack of air.
0: Um, I mean, at least from just what I've heard so far, I'm gonna go with her, because uh, it doesn't sound like with how fucked up. Carla is that uh she would get jealous and fly into a rage and murder but he's already shown himself as a violent monster rapist uh yeah yeah I think he probably did it but I mean I will say uh, just because she wasn't the one who in my mind at least choked the victim to death uh, she was uh, equally as culpable and part of it so you're both. To rash monsters.
1: Well, I, I agree. I mean, the two of them eventually chopped her up into multiple pieces and buried her in cement. This discovery was made while the two of them were enjoying their very elaborate wedding ceremony that included their entrance in a white horse-drawn carriage. It's like literally... This, to me, I see in, like, movie form where you've got one scene where this body's being discovered and one scene while these fucking killers are just celebrating their marriage. Horse-drawn carriage. All this ridiculous shit. When they're literally like monsters in disguise.
0: Oh my god, I can absolutely totally see it. You know, there's the them stepping out of this gaudy ass carriage. Yes. This happy song is playing, and then the scene changes, but the song is still happy, and it's zooming in on the body that's being found, and so it's very like disjointed. No, I'm I'm totally with you. Yeah.
1: So Paul realized that investigators did not suspect him. At least, like, not at the beginning. And so, it literally, like, boosted his confidence. And he's like, I can get away with anything. I will never be caught. I'm totally invincible. And then almost a year later, on April 16th, 1992, the two of them struck again. And this time, they grabbed a 15-year-old named Kristen French. So, while Paul was the one who brought Mahaffey to his home uh, by, like, his own doing, Carla is actually the one that lured... Kristen French, to Paul's car. Carla asked her to come closer to give them some directions, and that's when Paul grabbed her from behind and forced her into the vehicle. Similar to Mahaffey, there were a series of rapes and beatings that came next. Just like had been done with Tammy, Carla participated in sexually assaulting Kristen French before they brutally killed her. 12 days later, detectives found French's body in a ditch in North Burlington, Ontario, and they had left her body battered and her hair partially shaved. So police soon realized that these two murders, they were connected. They released a composite sketch that resembled Paul, and once that sketch came out, the calls started flooding in. Some of them were from coworkers and friends who reported Paul's really disturbing behavior and that he really had a thing for violence. And so the couple's killing spree finally came to an end on January 5th, 1993, when Carla, who had been severely beaten by Paul, she left to go live with some relatives.
0: So I know at the uh, beginning of your case, I was like, oh, I'm so- familiar with this yeah i take that back right now because i thought i was i've seen a couple documentaries oh my god i i know i've been kind of quiet for the past quite a while as you've been talking my mouth has been just agape the entire time oh it has i've seen
1: it you've literally just been like shocked and i was just like i'm just gonna keep going because this is too fucking much so at the end, you'll have to tell me what you did know about them. And um, I'm I'm just curious because you seemed like, oh, I got this. Although I will say, this happens every time. Every time you do a case that I think I know, I don't know it and vice versa.
0: Uh, Yeah, fair. And I mean, my knowledge of this, I've watched like a documentary and I listened to an episode of My Favorite Murder they did. I think it was a long time ago, like one of their earlier ones where they did this. And with them, one of the big pieces was, I guess, someone they knew... Uh, their mom was, like, an almost victim. Like, he had been following her, stalking her and shit. And then a couple weeks or months later, she saw his face on TV. But, uh, oh my god.
1: Well, and I, yes, 100% agree that I'm sure they didn't kill all of the people they victimized. Like, this is just who the ones we know about are, you know? There are a lot of people that he victimized that we don't know about. Or that are not known publicly,
0: Holy shit. I, even if the wine I had uh, bought earlier had not been uh, Satan's asshole flavored, <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm drinking this because that was 10.5% and you bitch needs something stronger for this case.
1: Oh, 100%. I'm glad mine is- I, I don't need
0: 100%. I don't need Everclear, but-
1: <laughs> No, you don't need Everclear. <laughs> but I'm the, the one I'm drinking is 14% and I'm very thankful.
0: Mine's Boda box percent,
1: so. So Carla moved in with her folks because Paul Peter. She confessed to the crimes to her family, and her family turned to the police. Detectives interviewed Carla, and she was at first really reluctant to open up, which obviously. That was until they offered her a plea deal that would have her out of prison within about 12 years. And she was like, okay, shit, this this is my opportunity. And so she claimed that Paul had told her he'd raped at least 30 women. So within two months, a DNA sample taken from Paul turned up as a match for the Scarborough rapist, and he was put under surveillance before he was eventually arrested in February of 1993. So when he was questioned after his arrest, he insisted that he never killed anyone, though he did admit to a lot of sexual assaults, but he was like, I didn't kill anyone. So interestingly, Interestingly enough, even though Paul had a long history of committing rape, he never killed any of the women that he sexually assaulted in Scarborough. His very first murder occurred when he was with Carla when they killed her sister.
0: Oh, shit. I didn't even make that connection. But yeah. Yeah.
1: That was the first murder. The rest, as horrific as they were, I mean, at least the victims did escape with their lives.
0: I will say, though, I still stand by, uh, just because you weren't the person holding the knife or physically choking them, y'all both fucking murdered these people. Agreed. Y'all both did
1: it. Agreed. So Paul was charged and convicted for numerous counts of rape, which included the Scarborough assaults and two counts of murder. Carla, on the other hand, was charged and convicted of manslaughter in exchange for testifying against Paul. The government agreed to a 12-year sentence in exchange for her cooperation. Although this uh, backfired pretty dramatically when the videotapes came out that the couple had taken, like showcasing all of their very gruesome crimes. And so Carla's true nature was revealed in those moments.
0: Okay, good. Yeah, But I was about to uh, flip the fuck out. Uh, when you said 12 years, because I was like, there are people in not three strikes states that, uh, get longer than that for like, what, having weed or whatever on them? Well,
1: I'm not done yet. So those videos came out and Carla, she was clearly not this abused victim that she had attempted to portray herself as, but she was a really cruel sadist. And I'm not saying Paul did not victimize her because I guarantee he did. But she still Uh, played a very heavy role. So Paul was found guilty of all charges against him and consequently sentenced to life for the rape, murder, and kidnap of the two girls. But it's really believed that he killed more. I only talked about three killings. I think that, like I said, the one Tammy, Carla's sister, it was ruled just like an accidental death. And so I don't really know how much that was actually investigated. It wasn't a part of this trial.
0: Well, and if they were already at the point of dismembering their victims and encasing them in concrete, I think it is very much like a chance or something that that victim was found. And there's no part of me that doesn't think there are more victims in concrete whose bodies have not been found and identified yet. I
1: agree. I think they did a lot more than what's been discovered. But- Carla was released in 2005, so she did do about 12 years. She has since remarried and had children, and she actually lives in Canada again. Like, so there for a while, she, like, went off. She had a different name, completely separated herself to try to start a life. But she moved back to Canada... People found out who she was. And so let's just say her neighbors, you know, the fellow moms for her kids' uh, soccer games and team, they're... Yeah, the moms
0: (laughs) who have Chardonnay and Ice Cube night.
1: They're not very happy that Carla is the mom of these children. She's on the team. She's there cheering on the kids. They're like, we know what you fucking did.
0: Oh, they're going to break their Chardonnay glasses and cut a bitch
1: but the thing is the laws behind her she did her time she was released not that i'm saying like it was enough because i i really don't think it was i think she was a whole hell of a lot more involved and she got a good deal for rat on paul i don't don't know but the the law is she is free and can live her life and so what that means is that Law enforcement, like, no one can do anything. Like, her children are allowed to go to that school. She's allowed to be a part of that community. But everyone's pretty uncomfortable about it.
0: Well, and that's... I'm glad you brought that up, because that is a really good point. Because she... uh, I mean, first of all, is very much a victim of Paul. You know, he very clearly, if he is this violent monster and, you know, he was abusive, I am sure she was victim of sexual assault by him. But also... She played a part in these pieces. Like both can be true. Yes. But, y- you know, I have to say, I am very staunch on the standpoint. Is that a word? I don't know. I don't know how many glasses I've had. So we're drunk now. But <laughs> I'm very staunch on the viewpoint. Sure. That if, you know, someone has served their time and completed their sentence and punishment, they should be able to re enter society as a person you know they did their punishment did their rehabilitation stuff and should be able to so but 12
1: years i know
0: that's 10 minutes
1: i know so paul is still in prison he actually applied for parole in 2018 at this time he'd been in jail for about or he'd been in prison for about 25 years and he was denied after only 30 minutes of deliberation they were like "Mm, nope hard pass so yeah that's the kin and barbie killers
0: You know, one thought I did just have, and this is coming from someone who very much does not agree with uh, the death penalty, but I wonder what it would look like if prisoners who were convicted and sentenced to life or the, you know, essentially life when they give you like 12,000 years, I wonder if they were like voluntarily given the option of the death penalty, how many would take it?
1: I don't know. It would very much depend on it. It'd be a case by case thing because uh, like your guy- literally probably would have picked the death penalty because his worst nightmare is living within the bounds of the government he hates. And...
0: Exactly. And time is so crazy to think about because if I did something super fucked up and got five years of prison right now, just look, which in all the cases we do, you know, how much we research this shit, it's like, oh, five years, shit, that's throwaway time. But if I looked back and made it like kind of introspective and empathetic, If I was in prison when I was 21 and just got out now, like, that amount of growth and how much shit I've done, that's just five years. I know. Think about
1: the people that have been wrongfully incarcerated for, like, 15 years, and they come out, and it's like, oh, "Oh, well, I'm fucked, and everything's changed. And I am not 100% mentally the age I was when I went in, but closer to the age I went in than I should be if I wasn't there, you know?
0: Absolutely. Oh, my God. Okay, well, um, I mean... Post-mortem, we, we ready to jump into Let's that?
1: Let's do it. Post-mortem.
0: Okay. Because, so I'm just going to come right out and say, you uh, got a fucking turkey here right now, because I think this is the third episode in a row that I am absolutely saying your case was the most intense, um, and I will fight you if you disagree.
1: I don't disagree, but also when you said you've got a turkey, it took me a second to uh, make the bullying reference. I was like, what the actual yeah. fuck is this kid talking about? Um, no, Yeah, (laughs) bowling. So, I I agree. Your case was a lot more intense than I thought it would be when you started. I'll be honest about that.
0: Honestly, same. When I finished my case, I had the internal, like, yeah, I brought the intense one this time. And then I was very wrong. But, I mean, yes, both of our cases were absolutely intense. This
1: was a very intense episode. And I think mine was more intense just because of the psychological trauma that Paul and Carla put on their victims but also that Paul put on Carla and probably also that Carla put on Paul like i'm not saying she's not at fault like she's obviously at fault for these things but it's such like a mind fuck that's that's it my case is a mind fuck and that's what makes it so intense
0: yes like i mean my case very much was intense and very much eric rudolph is a monster, there are a trillion things wrong with him, but just the amount of detail your case had, and I just personally for me, in my case, I never felt like I was on a knowing them level or an, I you know maybe acquaintance level with Eric Rudolph. Yeah. It was very much a story for me in yours. you went so deep into the details, the psychology of it, the just the aspect of it that I'm like I can put myself in a situation that i could meet these people and all you
1: have to do is be at a bus stop apparently
0: for fucking real but it's just yours i don't know how this will come off listeners let us know or Brittany, let me know but i feel like mine eric rudolph feels more like a character and in yours paul and carla feel like real people And that is so much more terrifying than any fictional aspect. Not that Eric Rudolph was fictional at all, but it to me it's kind of the difference between watching a horror movie that's just a movie and then watching one that is like based on a true story. And you're like, this happened. Like,
1: Uh, yeah, I I agree.
0: So okay, well, I will again pick the topic next episode, and I am gonna bring the most intense case I can find because I don't like I don't like having to pick the topic.
1: I know I haven't had to pick one in a while. I've got some brewing, so whenever uh, you bring a real intense case, I'll unleash the brewed you... intensity in my brain. Yeah, I mean, <laughs>
0: you you got that shit queued up. Yeah. Well, this episode has far and away been a lot more intense than i thought it would be i but Again, I feel like I feel that with uh, every single Decades episode we do, because it's like, the topic is innocuous, and like, oh, it's this decade. Let's bring the scariest fucking shit that we can think of in this decade. Well,
1: I mean, dude, we're talking about murder, so every episode is innately pretty intense. Just gonna say. That
0: is absolutely right.
1: But at the same time, when we pick an entire decade, like, of course we're gonna bring the most intense cases, that's a 10-year period, and we have to pick one.
0: Uh, one true. out of yeah. No, I'm agreeing with you on all of it. I hate it. Yeah. But uh, if uh, y'all enjoyed this episode as intense as it was, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. We absolutely love hearing what y'all have to say. It really gives us a lot of insight into you know how y'all are enjoying it. Anything y'all would like to see more of, and I, we love seeing y'all's reviews. So make sure to head over there, give us those five stars, let us know what you think.
1: ayo we are also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Be sure to check that out. One of my favorite things about Instagram is that we have photos of all of the wines that we do. So if you want to drink along with us as you listen. That's where you should go. Also, we're trying to post more photos of like the two of us, like doing our thing. So, just you know, check I mean, us out on social. Yes,
0: <laughs> if you if you are sitting there listening to my buttery bass tones, as apparently they are, I am not a bass, but <laughs> uh, and you're like, ooh, what does he look like? Or you're listening to Brittany recount these things, and you're like, holy shit. What does the world's, like, best storyteller and informat look like? (laughs) Oh, God. You can head over to Instagram and see our beautiful faces. Um,
1: You're too nice. But, yeah, definitely check us out on social.
0: And with that, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in, for listening to this episode. Y'all are absolutely incredible. We love you. And this is Blood & Wine signing off.
1: XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.